God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you, God, for your word and the, the power that's behind it. God, the, the almost unabashed boldness that you speak with as uh, you're not just speaking about truth, but you literally are truth. And you're just expressing no matter what you say, it is true. And God, we love that. And, and we thank you so much that it can be a rock that we stand on when this world is so confused and this world has so many different thoughts. Um, God, I just thank you so much for your word that, that brings truth and stability to our, to our mind, but also, God, can penetrate deep into our heart and can cause us to be broken and humbled before your presence. And God, we pray for that right now, God, that, that this word that we speak would not bounce off a hard heart, but it would be like a seed planted in soft soil into our heart. And we pray that it would grow up into the fruit of love and the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. If you don't know where the book of Genesis is, I'm not even going to help you. You have to figure that one out on your own. So if you think with me, what does, uh, think of something that God does not have. What comes in your mind? How about a beginning? No beginning. He has no beginning and no end. But Genesis, this book, is pretty much the beginning of everything else. Pretty much, this is not the beginning of God, but it's the beginning of everything else. So I want to cover a couple things real quick. Why should we study the book of Genesis? Why is it really important for us to study? Uh, number one, the, the Bible would be pretty much incomplete and perhaps even incomprehensible without the book of Genesis. It sets the stage for the entire drama of redemption which unfolds in the rest of this book. Number two, it, almost all important doctrines taught in the Bible have their foundation in the book of Genesis. So the doctrines of sin, redemption, justification, Jesus himself and who he is and what he does, uh, the personality and, and the, the trinity of God, the kingdom of God, the fall, Israel, the promise of the Messiah, and much, much more. They all have their beginning here in Genesis. So it's very important. And it's not only important for those aspects, it's important to the New Testament. Did you know that the book of Genesis, there's 165 passages from Genesis quoted in the New Testament and over 200 allusions to it as well? So obviously the book of Genesis is what the whole New Testament is founded upon. And so we're, it's definitely worthy of our time and study. But the biggest thing, and this is so important, and if you don't get anything else out of the rest of today, listen to this. Jesus declared the importance of believing, believing what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis. And I'll quote it to you in John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, Jesus said. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So that's Jesus' opinion himself of the book of Genesis. He says it's so important because if you don't believe Genesis, he says, how are you going to believe what I say? The whole book of Genesis is about me, he says. So that's why it's so important. So I don't want you to think that this is like the, the prequel to the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, that had nothing to know. This is the actual story about Jesus, where he got started. We're actually going to see Jesus show up multiple times in the book, book of Genesis, and those are called Christophanies. It's a big theological term, just means Jesus showed up. 
Before he was even born, he showed up. It's pretty amazing. And uh, one important thing to know that we'll just touch on now, we'll kind of study it more in depth later, but the book of Genesis was uh, not actually authored by Moses, but it was edited by Moses. He was like the editor. He was the guy that took the, uh, the, the um, eyewitness accounts and he compiled them into one book. And we'll see the phrases that he used to, di- uh, to tell us who was the actual author of those parts. You'll see Adam wrote a part. We'll see Abraham writes parts. We'll see different people write different parts, but we'll get into that later. So I want to start with a joke, because I love jokes. So do you guys know that baseball was in the Bible? In the big inning. God created the heavens and the earth. Ooh. Thanks. And Abraham made a sacrifice. Nailed it. Okay, well, (laughs) there's my cheesy jokes for the day. I have to throw them in. But that is the verse that we're looking at today. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very exciting verse. Whole bunch is in there. So we're going to unpack that a little bit here. The first thing that we see here, is that there is a God. There is a God. The Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to justify or argue this point. It just claims it as being obvious and true. So the last week has been really exciting in my life. Okay? I started reading this book or listening to this book on Audible, which is amazing. If you don't listen to books, do it. It's awesome. I just, I've been driving around. I don't drive an exceptionally lot, but I've gotten like five or six or seven hours into this book just from the time I'm driving around, and it's awesome. So this book I'm reading is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler, and it's incredible, and you guys all need to go out and buy it and read it. It's a little deep, and it's got a lot of philosophical terms, but he goes slow enough to help you get it, and you can rewind if you don't get it, or if you're reading, just read slowly. You'll get it. It's not that hard, but what he does is he takes the reader on this journey from atheism to believing that Jesus is God and is the savior of the world. And he takes this journey with a logical, he he uses logic and science to actually prove that to be an atheist requires more faith than to be a Christian. That they are actually believing things that are bigger stretches, that are bigger leaps of faith by far. It's not even close. It's like incredible and I'm it's so amazing people think sometimes that being a Christian means you just blindly believe whatever the pastor tells you or whatever the Bible tells you and that's so not the case I mean you can live like that and it's fine if you do but Christianity is founded on truth that's why the the Bible is truth itself it is his without error and and that this book has been unpacking this for me this week. So I've been tweeting some stuff about this on my Twitter. And, you know, you can follow me and see kind of what's been going on. So I got these, like, professors from these colleges. I didn't start this, by the way. This was not me starting it. But these professors started tweeting at me. I don't know what they saw, atheists, and just searched it or whatever. But they started questioning me about, about different things. And so I kind of rebutted some of their, their arguments and stuff like that. And anyway, so I've become like the center of this Twitter storm of atheism versus reason, and it's been really fun. <laughs> but last night, I was even, I was up late last night, like trying to figure out how to answer these guys. It was really, really amazing. But it's funny because the Bible, it doesn't spend forever saying, well, you can believe there's a God because of this and because of that and because of the other. It just assumes, it just starts its narrative by saying, 
I'm God, and this is how I did things. And it's okay doing that. And the reason, I think, is because God is so amazing, so glorious, so wonderful, so powerful, that if anyone actually got to see him, like got the full view, maybe if he just showed up in the sky for everyone to look at in all his glory, people would be compelled to believe, wouldn't they? They would be compelled. They couldn't, they couldn't come up with an argument against seeing that. So he seems to hide himself a little bit. He, and he gives us a measured amount of revelation of who he is. And that measured amount of revelation is the word of God and its creation around us. And we'll get into lots of different ways that we can know that God exists just by the fact that the creation exists and the second law of thermodynamics and stuff like that. But for now, we'll just say he gives us some evidence, but he requires there to be a certain amount of faith. And so it's so that it's not for you. He doesn't do that way because of you, because you're going to have faith. You're going to believe. He does it so the person who does not want to believe won't be forced to believe. Because if they were forced to believe, that would be coercion, and God will not partake in coercion. He wants there to be love, and for there to be true love, there has to be a true choice. And so he will say, you can look at the world, and you can think it's something that came out of nothing and just appeared here because of aliens or whatever. You can do that and I'll let you. But the real reason is the heart, and we'll get into that. So today's message is actually called Random Chance Destroys Love. Random Chance Destroys Love. So the Bible simply says creation is the proof. It's all the proof that you need. And I'm going to reference a couple verses here. Psalm chapter 19 Verses 1 through 4 tells us, The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word, their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words tell all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. So here we see, God creating the heavens is a message. It's a message. Now, he said here it's not words, but it's a message. Let's say you woke up in the morning, and you lived at home with your parents, and, you, and there was a uh, cereal, your favorite cereal, the alphabet cereal. I know you all love alphabets. And so your mom, before you got up, she had gotten up early and had poured you some alphabet cereal. But she had spelled a little message there, and it said, Take out the trash, mom. Who, with any amount of reason, would dismiss that and say, oh, that must have been natural chance. The wind must have blown over the box and created this message to me. No one. That's literally stupid, right? It, it, we wouldn't say that. We, and you can take this illustration further, and you can go into it, and you can say, well, you know, if you're sitting at the, at the beach, and you know those skywriters who write a message, and you see a message saying, drink Coke, but you didn't see the airplane make it. You just saw this message. You're like, oh, I must speak. I must, maybe I'll go drink a Coke. It's a message for me. But nobody thinks that the clouds would ever form words to say, drink Coke. Or how about Mount Rushmore? You guys all know Mount Rushmore? How many of you have been to visit it? 
You've seen the faces, right? Presidents carved there. Who thinks that was carved by the wind and erosion and natural forces? Nobody. It is just without reason. Yet, the universe is vastly more complex, has vast, vastly more uh, information in the messages in the universe, and yet people claim that that's not a message? You know, that one single cell organism in just the nucleus has enough information in its DNA to fill 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And in one cell, over 700 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that information is very, very complex. It's much more complex than take out the trash, mom. Just life, life in and of itself. The universe, the, the complexity of the universe in and of itself is a message. It's information that is ordered in a specific way. Like mom, take out the trash, drink, coke, a sculpture with faces. It's a message. And it declares, it yells at people, God is real. God is there. God exists. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul tells us what's going on. He says that ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's what Paul said 2,000 years ago. And it's the exact same today. Because of the way the universe is made, because of the fact that the universe exists, shows that there's a God, shows that he's powerful, shows that he's creative, and shows that he has a will and a personality because he chose to make it. All these qualities about God are just known just because we see stars and we exist and there is life. All these things so clearly speak. But Romans 1 says the reason people don't want to believe in creation is because they don't want to be accountable to a creator. They don't like the fact that someone's going to be their boss and then is going to judge their life. And it chaps their hide. But it's the truth. And it's really fun to talk with someone who doesn't believe this. And I do this all the time, and I encourage you to, too. If someone doesn't believe in, in God or, the, or creation, just keep asking this question. Well, what was the cause of that? And they'll say, so you say, where, where did life come from? Well, monkeys, and then these animals. Well, what was the cause of that? Well, these animals. Well, what was the cause of that? Single cell. Well, what was the cause of that? Well, it rained on these rocks. Well, what was the cause of those rocks in the rain? Well, this and that. And well, what was the cause of that? You just keep taking them back, and they will finally get to the point where they say, I don't know. I don't know. Where did all the matter in the universe come from? Well, it, it, the Big Bang exploded. The Big Bang is wonderful for creationists because it proves our point that the universe had a beginning. Evolutionists don't want to believe in the Big Bang because all the matter in the world, all of time and space came out of the Big Bang, and where was it before that? Well, they'll say it was in a tiniest little point that was literally, this is their definition, nothing. So you break it all down to this, and you say, so what you're telling me is that nothing exploded and made everything. That's really smart. That's really smart. I believe there was a power, an eternal 
intelligent power that created everything. Well, we'll get into more of that a little bit later. So we keep asking, where did it come from? God is the source. That's the big thing that we, we learn there. A couple other reasons we can know there's a God that we'll just touch on, we won't go in detail, is prophecy. The Bible has prophecy in it that, that tells the future accurately, and no uh, natural means could do such a thing, so it's got to be supernatural. Uh, the resurrection, we can, we'll get into that in another time. Um, and it, but the real thing is that all observable science points to God. It, it bring, being the cause of the Big Bang and the intelligent designer of all life, matter, and time. The Bible is always accurate when talking about scientific things. You know, with the account of the flood, which we're going to get into in a couple weeks, uh, we would expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers, drowned by water all over the earth. And guess what? That's exactly what we find all over the world. We also see the universe is logical and orderly as of created by a creator. It's very important to understand. And ultimately, this is the big point for today. Love, reason, knowledge, logic, and morality are all completely impossible to explain in a purely materialistic, materialistic universe that happened by chance. All those things literally mean nothing. Darwinists need more faith than we do. They have absolutely no evidence that life came about through chemicals just thrown together. Or else we could take chemicals and make life all the time. There would be spontaneous life all the time. But it doesn't happen. Furthermore, their religion of materialism is self-defeating because it's an idea or thought or philosophy. And it's not derived by any natural forces or chemicals. So the very idea or religion of materialism should not exist if materialism is true. So it's self-defeating. Uh, so it is false. Their own def definition of materialism causes it to be false. Okay, so that was the first thing. There is a God. The second thing we learned today is that he is plural. God, here in uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, the Hebrew word is Elohim. And grammatically, it's a plural use of the word. And in, in Hebrew, there's three kinds of plural. There's, well, there's singular, and then there's dual plural, which means just two things. And then there's plural that we would think of, which is three or more things. And this is that plural, three or more, uh, use of the word Elohim here. And it uh, speaks to us that even in the very first verse of the Bible, we have the Trinity. We have God, three persons, having a conversation amongst themselves. Even the language speaks of it that way. Number three, he is creative. God is creative, mass, massively creative. And he laid it all out for us to see and explore. And even more that we can't even see yet. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion stars. I counted them. And our galaxy is shaped like this giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is just one star in, that, in, in one arm of that pinwheel. And if, if we gave it 250 million years, that's how long it would take for this galaxy to spin around one time. But that's just our galaxy. There's many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals, spherical clusters, flat pancakes. And the average distance between one galaxy to another is about 20 trillion miles. Our closest galaxy, as you guys know, is the Andromeda galaxy, and it's about 12 trillion miles away. 
And for every patch of sky the size of the moon, so you guys have looked up and you've seen how big the moon is compared to the sky, for every patch, if you were to look at just that size of the sky, you would see about a million galaxies. Wow. That is unbelievably deep and, 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 and an amount that we can hardly comprehend. But God did all this himself. He says in Isaiah 48, verse 13, Indeed, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand stretched out the heavens. He did it with one hand tied behind his back. His one hand created all of these stars in one day, nonetheless. All this greatness boggles our mind, but still God is greater. Because, number four, he's a smart designer. Nothing is left to chance. Chance is a very big word, and we're going to spend kind of the rest of our time today talking about that word, chance. Because evolution is a religion of chance. Materialism is a religion of chance. They hide behind this word, and we'll unpack that in a minute. They take scientific and logical impossibilities and hide them behind millions of years in chance. They use those words, billions of years, millions of years, and it makes our brains shrink back and say, oh, oh yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. In billions of years, maybe there's a chance that a planet would form. Maybe there's a chance that all the chemicals would magically come together in the right way to make life. But they're hiding behind it. Because neither of those things, millions of years or chance, do anything. They don't do anything. They are not an actual thing. Millions of years or chance is not a thing. It is not a thing. It has no power. But assigning such power to the word chance is crazy. Chance doesn't have power. For an example, let me show you like this. If you have a coin and you flip it up in the air, what is the chance that it will land on heads? Not hard. 50%, exactly. 50%. However, chance, chance itself does not make it land on heads 50% of the time. What does? It's the environmental, um, the word I'm trying to think of is environmental characteristics. It's the, it's the variables. It's the wind blowing through the room. It's the amount of force applied by the thumb. It's all these different things. And if you knew all the variables, guess what? You wouldn't have to worry about chance. Because if you knew all the variables, if you could calculate the strength and calculate the wind and the rotation, guess what? There's math to do all that. If you knew all the variables, you would be able to predict with 100% accuracy what side the coin would land on, wouldn't you? So chance doesn't do anything but describe a probability. Chance is a word used to cover up our lack of knowledge. It's a word used to cover up our lack of knowledge. Because you don't know the wind, and you don't know the strength, and you don't know how many times it's going to rotate, and you don't want to put in the effort, or, or you don't have the ability to figure those things out, we just say, oh, there's a 50-50 chance. And that's exactly what evolutionists do. They use the word chance to cover up their lack of knowledge and actual data, actual math. That is truth. Some of the smarter and more honest scientists in the world see this problem, so they make up things called rescuing devices, things that help them 
with their theories. And they, one of these is, and this is actually a huge one out there in the scientific world today, is that aliens planted DNA on Earth. That's their rescuing device. Well, it doesn't fix the problem. It only delays it by one step, because you just ask them, where the aliens come from? And they don't have an answer for that either. Chance, they cover it up with the word chance. Well, somewhere in some other galaxy, some perhaps life formed by chance. Well, chance doesn't do anything. We, gotta, we can't let them twist our minds like that. Let God's truth govern what we do. So, spontaneous life, um, spontaneous life is the other one. It's just a rescuing device. And this is literally what they believe. That life just appeared. There was a soup, an ooze, a goo, and these, uh, these amino acids just got together and decided they wanted to be alive, none of which can happen, which is a really interesting problem also because for DNA to happen, you have to have proteins. For proteins to exist, you have to have DNA. So which one came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a good question. You can't have life without both of those at the same time. Love this stuff. Well... God has given us so much amazing proof and evidence of his wisdom and power. So just check this out. He created this world with such design. And we're like, a, like in Apollo 13. You guys remember Apollo 13, right? They went up into space, these guys, and everything went wrong. There was an explosion in the oxygen tank, and they became in this little tiny like life raft in space. They didn't have all the things they needed for life. They need oxygen. They need heat. They need water. They need all these very, humans are very, uh, we need stuff. We're not just uh, hardy aliens that can just travel through space. Like We need stuff, man, and, and part of it is oxygen. Well, Paul the 13 was running out of all kinds of those things. They barely made it back to Earth from the from space. And you guys know this uh, cry at the end of that story. It's so wonderful when they make it back. But they, they, they make it back. But why was it so dangerous? Because space cannot support life. But this planet is so fine-tuned. The, the chances of any one thing going wrong are just astronomical. But God has put us on this spaceship traveling billions of miles an hour through the universe and it's just amazing what goes on. So if the, if the universe itself was, was any larger, the stars would be too hot and they would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life here on Earth. You didn't know that things way on the other side of the universe affected your life here on Earth, but it does. If, if the universe was any smaller, the stars would remain so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and no light. So it's amazing. This is not by chance. The amount of oxygen, nitrogen, gravity, uh, even, even the amount of earthquakes we have on this earth are perfect for life to be uh, sustained. It's just incredible how God has done this so perfectly. Well, my favorite monk, not one of the monkeys, the band, but my favorite monk uh, from, from the third century AD, and he was a church father named Athanasius, he said this, and this was in the, in the 200s, okay? I want you to remember, this is 1,800 years ago. He said this. He's a great man of God, like a pastor-type guy, just great. He said, in regard to the making of the universe and the creation of all things, there have been various opinions, and each person has propounded the theory that suited his own taste. For instance, some say that all things are self-originated, and so to speak, haphazard, or you can read chance. The Epicureans are among these. They deny that there's any mind behind the universe at all. This view is contrary to all facts of experience, their own existence included. 
For if all things had come into being in this automatic fashion, instead of being the outcome of mind, though they existed, they would all be uniform and without distinction. So Athanasius, 1800 years ago, said it can't be all chance because if it was all chance, everything would be exactly the same. All our, all our faces would look the same. All our trees would look the same. Every form of life would look the same. That's a, he was able to reason this all the way back then. In the universe, everything would be sun or moon or whatever it was. And in the human body, the whole would be a hand or an eye or a foot. would be all giant feet walking around. But in point of fact, the sun and the moon and the earth and all different things, and even within the human body, there are different members such as the foot and hand and head. And this distinctness of things argues not a spontaneous generation, but a pre-inventive cause. And from that cause, we can apprehend God, the designer and maker of all. This was 1,800 years ago. He was that smart. They were genius. They were brilliant. They knew, they had the ability to reason and understand our religion, our truth that we have of Christianity is not something that's being made up. We are just standing on truth. The world is trying to attack us, not us, them. We know the truth. We stand on the truth. They're coming up with crazy things to try to tell us that we're wrong. And it just makes them look foolish because the truth doesn't need us to defend it. Like C.S. Lewis said, it's like a lion in a cage. You don't have to defend it. Just let it out of its cage. So we read the verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you have a problem with that, that's a big problem. That's a big problem for you. Number six, he created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and that word that in Hebrew, created, means to create out of nothing. He, made, uh, he, can, he can do that. He can create out of nothing. Just his mind, just his thoughts, he can actually create. He has that sort of power. Man does not have that, but we're made in God's image. And so we can have some of those creative ideas. But we create something using the materials around us, don't we? Everything in this room was created by materials found on this earth. We didn't make anything from our imagination. Here again, we see the timeless principles of grace and the new covenant at work before us. In the first verse of the Bible, I bring it back to grace. Yes, you didn't think I could do it, but I do it. See, God alone can source a new work in our hearts. We can't try to change ourselves to be more godly, more Christ-like, even though that's what so many in this world are spending so much time and effort in their own heart. They're pouring it out to trying to change it. And, and you have your, your meetings. Oh, I have an addiction. I need to change it over here. I need to change my life over here. I need to educate myself here. And, and all those things, I'm not saying education is bad. I'm just saying creation of a new life cannot happen by our strength. Grace comes from God alone. He alone can create new life where there was only death. He does not just rearrange the broken stuff in our hearts, he does a completely new work when we come to Jesus in faith and say, Jesus, just help me, fix me. I trust you. I come to you and abide in your word and spend time with you and expect you to create a new life inside me, one that was not just rearranging other stuff. He actually produces and creates life and goodness out of nothing. That's what the new covenant says. Man does not have that ability. Our religion, our, our Christianity is not about us changing us working it is about faith in god changing us and god's work inside us yet we often religiously trust our own abilities and resources when we wake up my prayer is that we wake up every morning and renounce 
any good, godly, uh, any dependence on the flesh, any godless dependence on the flesh. We just just be like little kids holding on to our daddy's hand and not letting go because we fear what we would be without him. So we are taught as we study the Bible to look for Jesus on every page. So where is Jesus in this verse? Where is Jesus? And I point you to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which tells us exactly where he was, exactly where he is. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. So Jesus was invisible at this point. And faith, it says, is what pleases God. So it pleases God when you believe that he spoke the world into existence and made it out of nothing by his word. And it glorifies Jesus. How? So when you believe in creation, when you believe the things I've told you today, when you believe what the Word of God tells us, it glorifies Jesus. It puts Jesus up on a pedestal. How does it do that? Because in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made that have been made. And in Him was life, and that life is the light of men. And we go down to verse 14, and it says that light, or uh, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So we know that the word is speaking of Jesus Christ in John chapter 1. And it says that Jesus was the one actually creating the world. He was the one actually doing the work. So Jesus was the one who did Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was part of that. He was the one doing it. He was the central hand putting it into motion, and he was invisible. So Jesus was there. He was the one doing it, and he is the only eyewitness of what actually happened. For us to empirically, scientifically decide what the truth of an issue is, we have to be able to observe it, right? Or we make deductions. Well, science can't observe what happened at the beginning because none of us were there, but we have an eyewitness, an eyewitness who told us I was there. And his witness is true. And he says, I created the whole thing. And Jesus says, when he was here on the earth, he says, the book of Genesis is right about what happened. Because he was there. In verse 4 of Matthew chapter 19, he says, he answered and said to them, have you not read that he made them in the beginning male and female? People struggle with what follows in this description of Genesis. Because they think it's just so supernatural and they think that there's evidence contrary, which it is not. But they think that there is and they struggle with it. But their problem isn't with me or with you or with the crazy Christian scientists that are out debating the evolutionists. They're awesome. I love them. But it's not with us. It's not with our philosophy. Their problem is with Jesus himself. Jesus said Genesis was right. And if Jesus says it, then I'm going to believe it. That's where I'm at with it. So Jesus says Genesis is right. But if, the, if you have a hard time with that, then I want you to think about this as not being a brain issue, but an actual heart issue. What is going on in my heart? Because it just might be revealing. If you read this verse and, and you're, you're, oh, I don't know, and maybe another, and maybe he started, maybe, I want you to think about your heart because it just might reveal a heart that is quick to dismiss God's word in favor for what's trendy and acceptable in the world. 
It just might reveal a heart of doubt that God has preserved and protected his word till this very moment so that it can be used in your life in your, as your way of relating to God. Maybe you don't really trust him in that way. Maybe it might reveal a heart that believes that the word is not to be taken seriously. Whether it's interpreted literally or allegorically, that's not up to us to decide. There is a right way to look at the Bible. And we've got to figure out what that is. It's for us to discover. There are only, there's only one correct way to interpret the Bible. It's a serious business to choose to believe something about God's account of creation. So you're either going to believe this or you're not. But your argument isn't with me. It's with Jesus. Jesus himself says, this is what happened. I wasn't joking. And if you're wrong, if you're like, you know what, I don't buy it, you're missing out on a blessing and an opportunity to know God and trust God in a deeper way. You know, I'm not saying that you can't be saved and not believe in creation, but I am saying it will have a massive effect on your life and your relationship with God because your view of him will be that he lied. He was not truthful or he was tricky. All things that God is not. He never wants to trick anyone. He is only truth and love. He's not playing a cruel trick on you. Or it might be that until today, you have never heard anyone tell you that the word of God is just true and you should believe it. Well, guess what? That day ends today. You should believe it. You should believe what the Bible says. I believe it. I believe every scientist who doubts biblical creation is wrong. And that the way they look at the evidence taints their, their uh, they can't look at evidence correctly because their worldview taints the way they see it. And they can't see the truth. I believe that God made the world very near to 404 B.C., that that's when creation happened, just because that's what the Bible says. I believe that all true science, observational and not theoretical, backs up the Bible. I believe, I'm, I'm not afraid to have a discussion with anyone who believes differently, and I don't look down on them for believing differently, but I'm going to believe this, and I think you should too, because I believe it's true. And it's not only the fact that we have some wonderful, reasonable evidence that shows that believing God's uh, word is truth. Um, I just explicitly trust the word of God. And many smarter people than I am, am fi are finding scientific reasons why the Bible should be trusted. But in the end, it really comes down to the heart. It really just comes down to the heart. Let this verse be something that is used by God to test your heart, to sift your heart, try your heart, and maybe see if there's doubts in your heart that are a heart issue between you and God, a trust issue. Like Abraham, he said, you know, are you going to believe God even though it doesn't make sense to you? God told Abraham, we're going to see to leave his country and go to a land that he would show him. Abraham did it. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham did it until God stopped him, and Abraham stopped. He just trusted the Lord. He trusted God's word. He let the word tell him what he was going to do in his life, not science and not TV, even though they probably were saying stuff back then too. God could have just let, uh, let people see him in all his glory. We already talked about that. But God's word is like God himself. It's representative of his character. And so it offends me, honestly, when people doubt his word. 
Jesus calls himself the word of God. He says, that's my name. And he put his seal of approval on it. And so Jesus himself is the reason why I believe the word of God. So if you can believe this verse that we've read and studied today, with all your heart, the rest of the whole Bible is going to be no problem for you. The rest of it. And it's got some wild, it's got some whoppers, man. It's got some stories that are unbelievable. We see, this, we see all kinds of stuff. The sun stands still. We see people coming back from the dead. It's amazing. But if you can believe this verse, it's good. So Jesus says, he was the one creating the world. And in another place we learn in Revelation that he was crucified from the foundations of the world. So that means that he, while he was in the process of creating the world right here, he was thinking about you. He was already an agent of love. He was creating the world. He was creating the very wood that he would allow himself to be nailed to. He was creating the metal that, he would, that would be formed into nails that would pierce his skin. He was creating all of it he, as an agent of love. He was doing it because he loved you. He could have stopped and said, wait a second, I'm going to have to be crucified for these jokers? No, I'm not down with that. But no, he said, I love them. And even if no one turns, I'm going to demonstrate my love to them. He was not just creating the heavens and the earth. He was creating an avenue for his love to flow to us, to be seen and experienced. So God is the word, and he uses his words to create. God is love, and God's creation gives substance to his love. It gives us an ability to understand a way to comprehend what love is. So because Jesus would come down from heaven to his creation, he would fully reveal his love for us and his desire to be with us. And then he would allow himself to be killed for the very creation that he made. There is no random chance in this creation. And if you believe in random chance as a force that did all this, then you have literally killed every reason for love. Creation itself speaks of love. It is all planned out. There is no random chance. It is clearly the foreordained plan of God to show you how much he loves you by dying on the cross for your sin. And that's amazing that he would continue on with the creation. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which we studied in our last book, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which, has, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The whole foreordaining, the whole predestination, the whole why, what was he doing before all this was all about love. He wants us to know the love that he has always known. Because before creation, Jesus was there with two other people, the Holy Spirit and God the Father, and they were all in this unity called the Trinity, and it was all love, the perfection of love, and so incredible. And so Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, uh, you gave me may be where I am, and they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the earth. Jesus says, the whole reason we're doing this is because we had this love thing going on and I want them to be a part of it. I want you guys to experience the love that I have with my Father because it's awesome. 
And I'm not going to give up on that. And I'm willing to pay the price. There is no randomness to any of this. Jesus wants to teach you about the love that he knows. And if you are thinking that God is taken by surprise by anything that has happened in history, that's not true. So that we, okay, so you're saying that God knew that we would rebel and sin and thousands of years of pain and suffering would ensue and he still created everything. Why? So that we could understand self-sacrificing love or the depths of his love. If everything was always great, how could we trust that he would come after us and rescue us if, if and when we needed it? It is only through the redemption acts of Jesus that we know the extent of his love for us. The love of God is something that you can know, but it's also something you need to believe. In 1 John 4.16, it says, And we have known and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God is in him. So our last question of the day, this is the last thing we're going to say, do you believe that God loves you? Many know it in their brains, but don't believe it in their hearts. And this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, actually leads us down a path that you can believe from this verse that God loves you and he would die on the cross for you from just this verse. We have such a wonderful faith, a wonderful object of our faith, that he would, he would declare from the very beginning, this is all about how much I love you. This is not about you trying to make it up to me with your works. This is not about you loving me. This is about me loving you. That's why I made you. That's why I redeemed you. And I've been doing it the whole time. There's never been a point where I've stopped loving you. Even when I did this, yes. Even when you did that. Well then, why do we run away from him? Why do we ever take our eyes off of Jesus Christ? That's the real question. Because that kind of love is, is so valuable. Many men give their lives for love, the woman that they love, and it's these great stories and Titanic. And Why couldn't he just fit on the raft? But Love is so valuable, and God's love for us has been declared and expressed, and he offers it to you today. And it's your decision, your free will, to say, I believe it. I believe it. Well, guys, let's stand up, and let's, uh, let's sing a song and pray, and just uh, end our service just rejoicing in the love of God. Well, Father, we, we close this time, and I know it's been a long study, and I know we only got through one verse, which might be frustrating to some people, but God, we um, thank you so much for loving us. 
And God, if, if no one remembers anything and all the details and all the philosophy and all the science or whatever, I just pray we remember one thing, that Jesus, you made a decision to die for us on the cross before you made the world. And this was all you. And Lord, we pray that every person in here would choose to respond to that love. God, that we would, we would believe that you have us on your heart and us in your mind. And Lord God, we thank you so much for dying on the cross for us. We thank you so much for creating the wood that was carved into a cross that tortured you. And God, when, when Isaiah says that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son because of your love, I just pray, Lord, that that would transform our hearts and our minds. And God, we would not be confused or beat down by what this world is constantly pushing on us, but God, we would trust you and trust your word. And if anyone in here is not yet in their life made a decision to respond to Jesus' call, to be their personal Lord and Savior and say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I ask that right now you would just do that. You would pray this prayer like me and just say, Lord, I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe, Lord, that you offer salvation to anyone who would look to you in faith and believe your word. God, we thank you, we put our trust in you, we love you.